Right, well, um, I have to say, first of all, it's a real privilege to be able to, to speak to you this morning. Um, and uh, I have to start my stopwatch because I'm a man under authority this morning. I've been told what uh, passage I've got to speak on, and I've been told how long I've got, which is 20 to 25 minutes. And for somebody who's uh, reputed, it's been said about me that um, when I start to preach, you don't look at your watch, you look at your calendar. So, so I'm having to be very, very careful this morning, okay? So I'm, do, I'm doing my absolute best, Laurie. But it, but it is a privilege. Um, Jenny and I joined you about five months ago. And the moment that we walked in the door, you treated us as though we were family, and uh, we have been very, very grateful to you for that, for your kindness, for your love. And, uh, and I'm grateful to you this morning for the opportunity to be able to share something from God's Word from uh, Genesis chapter 16. Can we have the this presentation on? There we are. Okay, so Genesis chapter 16. I've called it a simple twist of faith because this is a, a, this is a big um, chapter. This is a really important chapter in the life of, of Abraham. Because um, we've just been talking about the, uh, about the events in Manchester last uh, Monday night. And the fact is that you can draw a direct line from that bombing in Manchester right the way back to Genesis chapter 16. So it's a very significant passage of scripture. Not only that, but um, Channel 4 has begun to, um, to show a 10-part series called The Handmaid's Tale based on Margaret Atwood's uh, novel. And this is about a dystopian future when Christians, not Muslims, but Christians have staged a revolution. Uh, They have overtaken the state and they've set up the Republic of Gilead. And because of environmental pollution, um, many women are infertile, most women are infertile. Um, there's short um, infant mortality, mortality is, is soaring. And so what happens is because the ruling class want to have children, they appoint handmaids. So when does a wife of a member of the ruling class, like the prime minister or members of the cabinet, can't have children? This and a handmaid, and it's a very, very disturbing picture. What's di- more disturbing uh, about it is that, you know, this is these are supposed to be Christian people, fundamentalist Christian people. So Margaret Atwood got the idea for that from the incident of Sarai in Genesis chapter 16, and the two uh, handmaids um, of Jacob's wives, um, Bilhah and uh, and. Um, I've forgotten her at this second. They're there, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, what we must do when we're looking at this picture, we have to look at the, the life of Abraham as we find it in the book of Genesis. We have to see it as part of the big picture. We mustn't ever view the life of Abraham as being a, uh, the Bible choosing us a series of stories that we can tell our children, our Sunday school children. The, the life of Abraham was one of the most important men, is one of the most important men in history. Um, and particularly in terms of this chapter, uh, Abraham is a man who is, has been chosen by God 
to further the purposes of God. God has a plan for the world. He has a purpose for the world. And his people, Abraham and his people, are at the very heart of that plan and that purpose of God for the world. And let's look at that. Um, let's take a few moments, first of all, to look at the, uh, at the kind of context in which we find Abraham. In the beginning, God creates the heaven and the, and the earth. Uh, the heaven and the earth are not here because of some, some accident uh, that happened, a huge explosion. We're here because God created the world. He creates man, he puts him in a perfect environment, and he creates man and woman so that we can live in a, in a child-father relationship with him. A relationship of love, a relationship in which we know and love God and enjoy God and, and spend eternity with him. Now, the thing is, when you love somebody, you want to prove that love. How do you prove that love? You do things for them. In fact, if, if there was someone we loved who said, I don't want you ever to do anything for me, all right? We love each other, but we're not going to do anything to show our love for each other. That would be a very dodgy relationship, wouldn't it? Because when you love somebody, it's, it's in, your instincts to want to do things, make sacrifices for that person. So God creates man, puts him in a perfect environment. He gives him absolute freedom. Uh, man is, that's how God has shown his love for man. How does man respond? What does he do for God? Well, God says, you can eat of every tree in the garden. There is just one tree that you mustn't eat. Not a big deal, you would think. But isn't it so when somebody tells us that we shouldn't do something, we want to do it? And man fails the test. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't a magic tree. But then when they disobeyed God, they then had a, a, a practical knowledge of evil. And so God immediately sets in, in place a program for undoing everything that the servant has done. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the serpent, between your seed, between your offspring and her offspring... He will crush your head and you will bruise or you will strike his heel. And no man is an, entire, uh, an island entire of itself. Uh, every man is a piece of the continent, uh, a part of the whole. And so it, the, the sin of Adam and Eve didn't just affect them and their relationship with God. Ever since then, you and I, everybody who's born into this world is born alienated from God. Because we're born alienated from God, there's corruption. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, Every inclination of the thoughts of man's hearts was evil all the time. Genesis 6.11, The earth became corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So God makes a decision to undo the creation. The earth had come out of the, of the waters and the earth is going back into the waters. But there are eight people who are saved. God is going, he says in 6 verse 13, I'm going to put an end to all people on the earth because the earth is filled with violence because of them. But a new creation comes out of the waters. There's a new humanity, Noah and his children, and God, like at the beginning when he created Adam and Eve, he blessed them and said, be fruitful, fill the earth. And he says that again. This is a new creation. Is, uh, are Noah and his sons going to succeed where Adam and Eve failed? No, they're not. 
because the old nature is still there. Adam failed because of a tree, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Noah is going to fall because of a vine. He gets himself drunk, so drunk that he takes all his clothes off, lies in his tent, probably singing, you know, songs or whatever. His son Shem, sorry, his son Ham finds him naked, goes and says to his brother, hey, dad's in the tent. He's got nothing on. Come and have a look. And they don't. They walk backwards and they cover their father. They cover his shame. So you've got nakedness, shame, and covering, just as there was with Adam and Eve, and a curse. Cursed be Ham. Noah curses his son Ham, or his son Ham's son Canaan, because of the wrong that he has done to him. And again, the world becomes more corrupt, uh, so that we find the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, and God says, let us go down and confound their tongues. Let's confuse their tongues so that they'll not understand each other. And he scatters them over the whole earth. And then comes the call of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. And in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God promises Abram, or Abram as he then was, I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed because of you. And then, of course, Abraham is... Uh, the Implicit in that is the idea that Abraham is going to have children because through him all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And last week, Laurie was telling us about Genesis chapter 15. Abraham says, if you're my reward, what are you going to give me? And God says to him, look up at the heavens, count the stars, 100 billion of them, or just in our, our galaxy, and 100 billion galaxies. Look up at the heavens, count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So now he's saying you're going to have children, you're going to have a land. You'll have numerous children, you'll have a land for them to live in. So... In verse 8, Abram says, O Lord, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? This guy is almost 90 years old, and he's going to have children and a land? That's a, that's a big call for, for anybody to believe, isn't it? But God says, I'm going to prove it to you. And he does it in this uh, astonishing way. He says, I want you to bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these pieces to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Now, after this, Abram knows that God can never, ever fail to do what he said, because God is doing something which is very familiar to Abram. Back in those days when nations went to war, the conquering nation, the, or the king of the conquering nation, would say to the king of the conquered nation, look, I can do whatever I want with you. I am at perfect liberty, if I choose, to kill you. But I'm a reasonable man, so I'm prepared to enter into a covenant with you. And under the conditions of this covenant, you will give me so many slaves every year, you will give me so many camels, so many donkeys, so many shekels of silver, so many shekels of gold, and in return, I won't harm you. It's a good deal. Um, 
And if another nation attacks you, you just call to me and I will come and I'll rescue you. And then they would pass between the pieces of, uh, of various sacrificial animals that they had cut and offered to their gods. And they, the two kings would pass between the pieces and they would say to each other, may the gods do to me and more also if I do not keep all of the conditions of my covenant. Now, if you were dealing with the king of Assyria, you knew this, that if you broke the covenant, the gods might not cut you in two, because that's what they were basically saying. May the gods cut me in, do to me what we've done to these sacrificial pieces if I don't keep my covenant with you. If you were dealing with, say, the king of Assyria, who had a nice line in mutilation, uh, if the gods didn't do that to you, he certainly would. So it's a very serious thing. So Abraham and God walk through these pieces together and Abraham makes certain promises of God and says, you know, I will be obedient to you, I'll do this for you and in return you'll give me children and a land. No, that's not what Genesis says. It says a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch pass between the pieces. Abraham is just watching. And God, Father and Son, the God who is a consuming fire is passing through these pieces. And God, the creator of the universe, is saying to Abram, Abram, if I fail to give you numerous children, as numerous as the stars of heaven, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, if I fail to give you a land in perpetuity, may it be done to me what you have done to these pieces. And Abraham knew at that point God could never fail. That's why when God called him to kill his son Isaac, he was prepared to do it because he knew that whatever happened, even if he burned his son to ash, God would raise him up again because he had promised he'd entered into a covenant. And doesn't that say something about this morning, Jesus' new covenant? This is my body which is broken for you. And that's why you and I as Christians this morning, you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, can have absolute confidence and absolute certainty that God will keep us, that he will keep us through eternity because when we came to Jesus, we promised nothing. We came just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come and we came. And because of this broken bread, you and I can have absolute confidence that what Jesus began in us, what God began in us, he will bring onto maturity and finality. That's one of the lessons we learned from that this morning. There are four principal characters in Genesis 16. The first one is Abraham. He's the man of faith. He's the man who believes God. He's the man who's been accounted righteous because of that. The second person is Sarai. Now what's evident as you read the life of Sarai is that she is, she doesn't, she's not as strong in faith as Abram is because when God says to Abram, Sarah next year is going to bear you a son, she laughs. She doesn't believe, she denies it, she says I didn't laugh and God says to her, yes she did. I heard you. And the interesting thing is this, when in chapter 20, 23 verse 2 when Abram buries her. They're living in different towns. He's living in Beersheba. She's living in Hebron, 30 miles apart. What has happened? Well, remember that Genesis chapter 23 follows Genesis chapter 22. 
What's significant about that? Well, in Genesis chapter 22, at the beginning of it, God says to, to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, take him to one of the mountains of Moriah, and there offer him as a burnt offering. Now, the mountains of Moriah are the mountains that surround Jerusalem. So let's just have, have a look at a map. There's... What's happened? It looks like my laser is not working. Okay, but you can see Beersheba. Okay, can you see it? Um, all right. And you can see Hebron. It's about 30 miles apart. Now, where Jerusalem is about another 20 miles north of Hebron. So it means that Abram has gone from Beersheba to Jerusalem, and he's come back to Beersheba, and it looks as though when he got back, that Sarai was not there. So when she dies, he has to go from Beersheba to Hebron. And it looks as though Sarah has never forgiven Abram for being willing to sacrifice their son. Never forgiven him for being... He didn't kill Isaac, of course, but he was willing to. And it looks as though Sarai's faith was much, much smaller than Abraham's. So at the, they spend the end of their lives apart. Then there's Hagar. Where has she come from? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, you remember that um, Abraham and Sarai had gone down into Egypt... Abraham had been disobedient to God. He'd gone in unbelief. He'd lied about his wife. But God blessed him nevertheless. And we're told that Pharaoh, in Genesis 12, verse 6, Pharaoh treated Abraham well for Sarai's sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. And obviously, Hagar is one of those maid servants that had been given. Now, according to the law code of the, ham, of the land where Abraham and Sarai had come from, Ur of the Chaldeans, in, in the ancient Middle East, there was a problem. Because just as today, people are childless. Married couples are childless. Nowadays, we use artificial insemination and things like that. But then, back then, what did you do? Well, it was important for you to have children because when you got older, you wanted children to be able to look after you. There was no, uh, there was no national health service or anything like that. You needed children. So it's really important to have children. So according to the law of Hammurabi, very famous law code, when, a, when the free man marries a priestess and she gave a female slave to her husband and she is then born, uh, if later that female slave has qu- claimed equality with her mistress because she bore her children, her mistress may not sell her. She may mark her with a slave mark and count her among the slaves. And there were lots of laws like that in the various countries they came from. And so what happens is that Sarai says, I can't wait. I can't wait to have children. You know, I'm getting on in years and, you know, Abraham, you're not a spring chicken. So, uh, you know, there's a very simple way to deal with this. And that simple way to deal with this is that I will give Hagar to you as your concubine, as a second wife. The children that, that, um, that Hagar will bear to you will be my children. 
And the fourth person is the angel of the Lord. His mysterious character is the first mention of an angel in the Bible. And angel means a messenger. So this is the messenger of the Lord. And he's a mysterious figure because although he is the messenger of the Lord, he, he speaks like God does. He does what only God can do. And when people meet him, they say, we've met God. How are we going to live? Because no man can see God's face and live. We've seen his face and we're living. How can this be? So he's a mysterious character. And most Bible scholars have come to the conclusion... In fact, I don't know of any Bible scholar who doesn't come to this conclusion that the angel of the Lord is is the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate form who comes. See, God always does his work of salvation through Jesus. And and the messenger of the Lord, Jesus, who comes to help Hagar and comes in the form of a man 2,000 years later, comes as a man, to save the children of Abraham. Actions have consequences. And there are consequences. The first one is between Abraham and Sarai themselves. Up until this point, we never hear of any conflict between uh, Abraham, Abraham and Sarai. But she then says to him, when um, Hagar becomes, um, feels that she's superior to her mistress, Sarai says, this is your fault. You're the reason this is happening. If you hadn't gone into my maidservant, everything would be okay. Everything becomes Abraham's fault. And he just says, well, she's in your hands. Do to what you think. He's copping out. You see. Do what you like. Um, she's having a child. Do what you like. And as a result of that, the wider implication is that Ishmael is born. And look at what it says, he's a wild ass of a man. His hand will be against every man. His hand will even be against his brothers. And from Ishmael has come the Arab nation. From the Arab nation has come ISIS, the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, you name it. We are seeing the consequences today of that night that Abraham spent with Hagar. See, they were trying to help God out. It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, yeah? It's also possible to do the wrong thing for the right motive. Their motives were right. And because according to... um, Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, those who have Abraham's faith, as Laurie was pointing out last week, are the sons of Abraham. So there's lessons that we and you and I, as the children of Abraham, as the children of Abraham, can learn from from what we've been uh, reading. And what we learn in our... There are going to be twists of faith. Just as Abraham had his moments when he slipped... 
when he slipped up and slipped up bad at times, so that's going to be for you and me. It's part of the course. That's why when we were praying the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, say, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. That's going to be the course of our Christian life. It's going to happen. Okay? But there is forgiveness through Jesus. The angel of the Lord, Jesus in the form of the angel of the Lord, comes to Hagar and begins to sort things out. Now the thing is, um, God is, God is still in control. Despite how chaotic the world is today, as a result of Abraham's failure, as a, as, a, as a result of his twist of faith, as a result of his slip-up, God is still in control. God is taking things along to the, the destination that they had in mind. But here's the thing, then. We, this is, you know, we must never think, oh, well, okay, so I sin, it'll be all right. The twists in our faith affect other people. No man is an island entire of, self, of itself. Uh, every man is part of the continent. And uh, when we slip up, when there are twists in our faith, we have, we, we, we bear, we bear, we, there are consequences to it. And that's telling me to, my time is up, folks. That's it. Okay, so... Shut up. There you go. Okay, so I've got to sum up, right? This is, and the, I'm summing up with the, the, with the words of, Gen, of uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We're familiar with it. You know, uh, where Paul is saying, as a result of the mercies of God, you know, offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. There's an old version, some of, some of you will know it. People of a certain age will remember J.B. Phillips' translation. And this is how he translates Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's exactly what Abraham and, and Sarai did, wasn't they? They let the Babylonian culture that they'd come from. After all, these guys had spent 75 years in Babylonia living with these laws. It was second nature to them. So when, they get, when it seems that God isn't answering the prayers fast enough, we'd better do something about it. We'd better step in. Step in. We'd better give God a help. Don't let the world around you squeeze it, you into its mold. We've got to re be renewed our mind. Let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Yet, yeah, there'll be twists of faith. Yes, there'll be slip-ups. But allow God to mold your mind and not the culture around 